Hello and welcome to the Shira podcast, where we interview black women who are leading in their field. Our guests range from entrepreneurs to educators. These leading women are willing to share their experiences and successes, giving back to our community and showcasing so that others can see, learn and lead too. It can be tough for women and even more so for black women. We explore what it takes to rise above the challenges in today's world and be all that you were called to be. I'm Oge. And I'm Lisa. And we're your host. So get ready. And get comfortable as we dive straight in. Hello, and it is my pleasure to welcome to this episode, Reverend Dr. Kate Coleman. Kate is the founding director of Next Leadership and has 35 years of leadership experience in church, charity, and the business sectors. She's a mentor and a coach to leaders from a diverse sectors and backgrounds and communities. Kate was the first Black woman Baptist minister in the UK and has been recognized as one of the 20 most influential Black Christian women leaders in the country today. Kate serves as a strategic advisor. She mentors and coaches and supports leaders and organizations, not just locally, but also nationally and internationally. I am delighted to have you on this podcast, Kate. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Kate, you have a number of firsts in your portfolio of achievement. And in 2021, you were recognized as one of the top 25 women uh, racial justice champions in the UK. So what has that journey been like to where you are now? And what were some of the key milestones that determined the trajectory of your life? It's a great question. People often ask me kind of... uh questions about my journey and what it felt like and whether it felt different to something else but you know at the end of the day your journey is your journey and you know so my journey felt normal to me but I have to say that it was a challenging journey and uh, maybe one of the since you mentioned about the racial justice piece as well maybe one of the great frustrations was actually realizing how different my journey was from many of my peers So many of my white male peers or white female peers recognizing that their journey, their path through was often much easier. And I seem to be facing an incredible number of obstacles in terms of my own journey. But, you know, maybe if I kind of um, roll it back a little bit and kind of say, well, probably in terms of the trajectory for me, Probably the most important thing was um, actually becoming a Christian in the first place. So, you know, that happened when I was 18 years old at uh, university. And so kind of that, because that was so unexpected for me and for everybody who knew me, it was a very much a Damascus Road experience. I didn't believe in Christianity or the God of Christians because I'd seen some really bad, you know, examples of stuff. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. And then suddenly it was like overnight, you know, I went to this concert, God spoke to me and bam, the next moment it was all different. And so for me, that was the first big shift. And then the second big shift was the the shift to leadership. And it was that moment up a mountain, you know, the story I often tell, asking God what he wants me to do with 
the rest of my life and um, having lots of good ideas myself. I, I kind of already planned it just in case he could just rubber stamp it. But God has some other ideas and basically just closed every door. And I spent time fasting and praying, asking the Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And God spoke very, very clearly after a couple of months I have to say he didn't speak quickly but he did speak clearly you know so after a couple of months and it was that passage from Mark 9 2 where Jesus says to his disciples come up by yourself to a mountain and and that's what God said to me come up by yourself to a mountain and I'll speak to you and Jesus took his disciples up a mountain and so I basically being the person I am I said where are there mountains in the UK and, and the next day, I was walking along London Underground, along the platform at Chalk Farm, Tube Station, no less. That's, that's where I was living. Um, I looked up and there was this big poster of a mountain. And over the top of it, it said, visit Scotland. So I said, OK. You know, so, so I said, all right, Lord, that's what I'll do. So I went to Scotland for, for three weeks and two weeks of that, fasting and praying, Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life and God spoke to me so clearly I want you to lead my sheep I, he was calling me to leadership but I had a couple of big problems because uh, the first problem being that my church didn't believe in women in leadership second problem being I didn't believe in women in leadership you know <laughs> that's what I'd been trained to so I was kind of what is this and who is this speaking to me and eventually realized that okay if this is God God, you'll have to do it. Well, within two years of that, I was leading the church that didn't believe in women in leadership. Wow. And um, yeah, and um, it, it was a hair, it was a, uh, seriously, I, I learned how badly Christians can behave. It, that period of life was, it was intense. So I began to understand God's calling for women. I realized in that period, I was also a black woman. And, and that that made a difference too. It meant that it didn't have all the same issues that white women did and had some different priorities as well as a black woman. And so I pretty much committed myself to walking alongside women and walking alongside black people. And so that's kind of set the trajectory that eventually brought me to the racial justice piece that you mentioned at the beginning, Ogie. So uh, that was that's a long way around, a short corner so forgive me for waffling slightly but um very powerful journey no that's incredible just hearing how it's like you make one decision and you don't know that that decision would is going to take you along a certain path at the time it seems like it's just one decision but it's a decision that then starts you on that journey that brings you to where you are so yeah that's a, an amazing story yeah yeah thanks Kate and like you said, starting off in uncharted waters, you know, that pioneering approach, you said, you know, that church didn't actually believe in women in leadership, even you didn't at the time. So many of us now have the privilege of having role models. But when you're a pioneer and you're starting up and you're traveling down those roads that haven't been traveled down before, what's it like navigating that? And how would you encourage others in that are trying to do the same? Well, another good set of questions what was it like navigating it a lot of the time I felt like I was making it up as I went along um you know so you know this wasn't just the road less traveled 
there was nobody else on the road. It was kind of like, you know, looking up the road, there was nobody, I couldn't find any, there was nobody else there, but certainly not in my track and in my lane. And so I often felt like I was having to make it up. So I had some great white women around me, I had some great white men around me, I had some great black men around me. Um, and God often put people in my path who were able to illuminate the path a little bit. But some of the stuff I just had to figure out and I often felt very lonely doing that. I remember one of the key things that I did in that period of time, that, that early ministry period, was I found out every other Black woman in some form of church leadership in the UK. Now, there weren't many of us then. There are lots now, but there weren't many then. So I actually found just about everybody or at least found somebody who knew the person. And uh, we started to interact together we were all coming from very different church traditions very very different <laughs> but because we had this one common thing that uh, you know we were in leadership at some level of leadership I was in senior leadership at some level of leadership and we just needed to make sense of it and share a bit about our experiences and give each other some support so some of the women who are now doing amazing things that we now hear of. I'm not going to drop any names. I knew back then, and we were kind of in this space together, just figuring things out. So I say find people, find people you can be yourself with, find people who are going through some of the same journey issues, some of the same challenges you are. Find people that you don't have to explain everything to and support each other, don't compete with each other, bless each other, and give each other what you can't get from other spaces. And that would be one of my encouragements. Yeah, that's so you've mentioned some of the lessons that it's important to learn, but what are other lessons that it's important for, especially women, Black women or other ethnic minority women who find themselves coming against all sorts of discriminatory policies, and practices, what are the lessons that will help them to navigate those sometimes really horrible waters? Yeah, well, again, you know, aside from find a group, find a, you know, find a tribe, find that group that you can support each other in, because the reality is that um, many white women don't experience the same, exactly the same stuff. They're not at the intersection of race and, and gender. And sometimes it, there's a class piece there and there's a cultural piece too. So find some sisters for whom there are some common themes that flow there. That, that would be the first thing. I can't overemphasize that enough. Find that space. And I'd, I'd say kind of secondly, manage your expectations. The reality with this stuff is that racism, sexism, all these isms have been generations, centuries in the making. Racism, you know, four or five hundred years nearly of this stuff, it won't get dealt with overnight. Even when people's hearts are in the right place, their behavior often isn't. They've got to make a shift there. So for those of us who are on, often on the receiving end, of this stuff, but black women in particular, who often on the receiving end of both male issues and microaggressions, as well as 
female, white female issues, microaggressions. The first big thing is, is kind of manage your expectations, pace yourself, take care of yourself. Don't feel that it's all down to you, that you have to do all the explaining or the teaching or the, a lot of that, some of it's going to be full to us just because of the nature of the challenge. But actually, a lot of that belongs to other people. Give responsibility back. When people ask you to explain stuff, say, well, why don't you go and find out? And then we'll have a conversation. I'll talk to anybody who's done some work. These days, if people haven't done any work, I don't talk to them. (laughs) To be honest, I haven't got time for that. And, you know, I've got limited energy (laughs) these days. So I think that would be some of the advice, particularly take care of yourself, take care of yourself. Microaggressions, all of that is incredibly wearing. And the thing that often makes it wearing is is, um, sometimes people do it deliberately, but most of the time they don't. And that's the thing that makes it wearing (laughs) is the look on people's faces when they realize they've done something, offended you, and then you have to manage their feelings as well. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, oh, my! I'm managing my own stuff here and I've got to manage this. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I do agree that it's important to look after yourself because it is incredibly wearing. And I guess that's why sometimes we have to choose the battles that we fight, because if we fight every single battle, then we're going to be worn out. So it's Absolutely. choosing which ones to fight and which ones to leave for another day. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. some aren't yours, you know, some aren't yours to fight. I think that is such an important theme. Choose your battles, but recognize that some aren't yours. Don't just leave them for another day. Leave them for somebody else. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's so true. And Kate, you've worked in the church, voluntary sector, business sector. So you've got a diverse background in terms of the people that you've worked with and the communities that you've interact with and helped in regards to leadership. Have you seen a change in approach to leadership in those different sectors? And if so, what effect is it having on the organisation and the communities that it serves? Yeah, I mean, yes. Have I seen a change? Yes. I'm probably older than some people think I am. So I've been around for a bit longer. So yes, I've seen some huge shifts actually in the focus around leadership in virtually every sector. And there's some general things that are truer now than they were before. So I've seen the shift from the preference for command and control leadership, even in ch- within church context, although it's still more in church context than I'd say in business context. So seeing that shift more to collaborative relational leadership. So that would be a big shift that um, I've seen. I've seen a shift in a preference for alpha type leadership, you know, alpha males or even females sometimes more to a kind of beta type leadership, a willingness to to have someone who's perhaps a bit more introspective, a bit more reflective, and not just kind of just all charisma on the front end. Um, So, yes, I've seen that kind of shift taking place. Um, I've seen a shift taking place in, in what is considered to be the bottom line. You know, so we've had the shift from the whole thing is finance or numbers to finance is still important, numbers are still important, but People also talk about the environment. They're also talking about 
EDI, you know, um, equity, uh, diversity, inclusion has now become really important. Social um, responsibility has now become really important, particularly in, in terms of business and other contexts. So there have been some significant shifts around the focus of leadership and the way leadership is is practiced. So I think in terms of how's this benefited, in a number of ways, leadership culture is healthier. I'm not going to say healthy, but I'm going to say it's healthier than it used to be with some of those shifts. Um, It's a bit more rounded, a little bit more holistic, and also people, because of the more sort of collaborative nature of stuff, People feel people who were who would might have been just considered the cogs in the machinery before now actually feel as if they can make a contribution and it will be received, even if it's not agreed with, but it will be received, it'll be heard. And I think all of those things are really, really important. It's important to understand people's gifts and people's capabilities and some of the stuff that we do around leadership. Uh, assessments and all of that sort of stuff has helped with that but it's not necessarily helped people to become who they should be so we're on a journey with leadership it's generally it's a good one but there's there's room there's there's space and particularly within church contexts there's there's a lot of space particularly around EDI stuff around equity and diversity and inclusion a lot of ground to be taken there I think yeah it's interesting what you said about the shifts from the alpha to the beta one of the things that I struggled with when I first felt that I had a call to leadership was the fact that I'm an introvert and I kind of didn't see myself as that you know that extrovert who loves people you know front of the it just didn't seem to be my kind of person and because of that I thought you know leadership wasn't for me but I remember some years ago I read a book that talked about level five leadership and the characteristics of this person in level and it was nothing like I thought it was so it was a huge shift to my thinking about what a leader ought to look like Mm -hmm. and the fact that even with you know even if you're an introvert and you're not charismatic as the world would see it that doesn't mean you cannot lead and lead well absolutely and that is such an important observation and thing to say and I'm really glad that you persevered Um, I think because I'm an introvert that's the irony of it you know most people don't believe it I do what I need to do where I need to do it but um, I'm pretty much fairly much an introvert when it comes to this sort of stuff you know I'd be much happier just in my small corner uh, doing my stuff than kept being interrupted by God to do something else but I think that's really important one of the most important books I read was called I think it was called Quiet by is this Susan Cain yes Uh, and it's kind of introverts in a world full of extroverts something like that but it really really good and I'm I'm just glad that you persevered really glad (laughs) I'm glad I did too so 2020 was a huge year when lots of things happened uh, with the aftermath of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests in your work with leaders and in leadership Since then, because there was a huge shift in leadership that happened as a result of those events, 
what would you say were the predominant issues that leaders are facing now? Both in terms of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matters protests, uh, there's a there's a huge amount. But um, you know, if I kind of take the last one first, because I think that's um, that there's been a huge shift, mostly in awareness that Black people's lives were actually quite different to white people's lives, and that our experiences were quite different, and that you know the whole debate, Black Lives Matters, All Lives Matters, that piece of nonsense, um, forgive me, um, you know, but that piece of nonsense, um, just for many people, for many white people, let me put it like that, it was revelation. And some of that understandable, because what people tend to do is they tend to assume that other people's lives are like their lives. And most people don't check statistics and don't check that stuff. And I think we kind of got into a place, even for Black people, where we weren't kind of telling, like, we, most Black people have just got tired of trying to tell white friends, etc. My experiences are really different. So unless white people saw it, it was hard for them to really believe it or to believe it for long. I think what happened with the protests, with George Floyd's death, et cetera, is that many white people woke up and for the first time realized that there's something wrong and we're probably part of it. And so in terms of what I've been seeing with leadership across the board, I mean, you know, many organizations uh, put out statements and, you know, and, and, and uh, put their hands up and said, we think we've been part of this. We want things to be different. And that includes some churches. Um, churches, interestingly, were slower than many organizations. Many of the multinationals were very quick. You know, it was within sort of 24, 48 hours. Statements were out there. Plans were out there. Churches, particularly here in the UK, painfully slow, weeks before people were really beginning to say stuff. I mean, I'm grateful that my own pastor was very quick. Within two or three days, he said, put something out, made his position very, very clear. But that's because he's got lots of black friends and actually has proper conversations with them and had seen what was happening to some of um, the black people in churches he'd been part of. So I think the biggest thing that has happened is awareness. Mm. The second thing has probably been a willingness, a bit more of a willingness. But if you come from the kind of church background I come from, evangelical, charismatic, Pentecost, that sort of stuff, part of our problem is that we like to fix things quickly, you know, so we don't hang around to listen for long enough and to figure out that actually maybe it doesn't all get fixed in a day and there aren't five steps to solving this. And I'm still seeing a bit of that around, I have to say. But I think in terms of the pandemic and some stuff it threw up for people, it opened our eyes to a lot of things that we weren't really paying attention to before, including the, the themes around racial justice, being very biblical, being very God-oriented, God being much more concerned about that stuff than we are generally. But it's also thrown up a whole bunch of other stuff. Leaders are very exhausted. You know, there's a lot of burnout about and uh, perhaps for Black 
and brown leaders in particular, because they're also having to carry this other stuff, mm. as well as the normal leadership stuff. And there's been quite a lot of trauma, I think, and re-traumatization over this past year or so. So those are some of the things, but, you know, there's a whole raft of stuff coming. There's so much stuff coming, and it's coming at pace. Within churches, Christian circles, we're still struggling with what to do with human sexuality and haven't, for some, we haven't yet seen, next big thing is AI. And what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a person? That is coming really quickly up the track. And then with, uh, you know, perhaps you'll appreciate this with your medical background, but, you know, for somebody to have a, a heart transplant from with animal origins, I think it was, a, it was a pig. I mean, that's huge. You know, what does that mean for humanity and future? And what does that mean in terms of our theology, et cetera, et cetera, as we continue down that track? Some of this stuff we can shape. Some of this stuff is coming, like it or not, and we just have to figure it out. So there's a lot going on, but the first thing we've got to do is learn to treat human beings like human beings and uh, we haven't quite managed that yet. No that's great because a lot of people have been asking for help um, in that like you said after this droidfoid incident that happened and the protests that followed because of that and we're grateful for technology that that was highlighted all over the world and the world joined in in that fight for justice but them asking for help and knowing what to do with racial equality and diversity and how to put that in place. Some things, like you said, have been done. There have been policies. There have been statements made. Um, but then that's it. It, stop, it stops there. <laughs> and others are trying to do something, but they don't know what to do. So what can you advise in that regard? What can they do? What should organisations do? How can they elicit the help and the support that they need? There are so many different things out there. How do they know which is the right one? Some of this stuff isn't rocket science. Um, it's not difficult. You're right that some some have been struggling to know what to do. Mm. Some of that struggle isn't because there's a lack of material out there. People have been working and writing and theologizing and, uh, you know, on this stuff for a long time. I think one of the things that I found really interesting over, I'm going to say a few things, but one of the things I found really, really interesting through this time is that when white people in particular and white Christians in particular were kind of looking for theological kind of underpinnings for, you know, anti-racism, stuff like that. They didn't always look in the direction of Black people who have been doing this sort of work for a long time. They often were listening to uh, white theologians who had been thinking about it for five minutes. Um, and I'm not saying that they didn't say some useful things. It's just that some people have been doing this for a while. You know, so I had people coming to me and saying, there's nothing out there. There's nothing for us. There's no information. We don't know where to, you know, nobody's done it. And they were trying to reinvent the wheel. It's kind of like people have been doing this for a long time. You know, racism is, is a global phenomenon. It's not a UK thing or a US thing. It's that's, that's why there was a global protest, because anti-Black racism is a global phenomenon. You know, even in India, there's anti-Black racism. You know, so it's so people have been thinking about this for a while. Finding the stuff might be a bit more challenging. 
but that's where doing some work comes. When people are really motivated to see change take place, they pull out the stops. I've actually been a little bit surprised at how people want this stuff to be really easy. It's not easy. And they want it to be simple. It's not simple, it's complex. We accept there's complexity around all sorts of things from youth culture to gender. When it comes to race, we want it to be easy, simple, straight, just give it to me, easy, just, but that's not how it works. There are some good people out there doing some good work. There are people who have been working in that area of what we now call EDI, you know, equity, uh, diversity, inclusion, belonging, depending on where you're coming from. Some people are uh, only using the terms belonging and inclusion now because those are the things that count. And I understand why they do that, because as you said, Lisa, what tends to happen is people stop with diversity. They think, let me get some darker faces in the room and we've solved it but of course we haven't because we haven't actually started to do the real work of what does it mean to have these people in the room how are we different from each other what do I need to learn from them and what can I share um, in terms of giving to them as well so we have to want to do the work that God wants us to do And discipleship has never been easy or straightforward. We do it, you know, the Bible speaks about with fear and trembling, you know. That's how we need to view this thing. We run programs. We call ours. Ours is focused around leadership because of what we do, because we develop leaders. So ours ours is called collaborative leadership, but it's looking at it through the lens of leading in a racialized world. So race is the focus of it. And um, we do other stuff and take people through journeys of reflecting on this stuff. They're, you know, we're one of a number of people. I know you both also have some expertise here. You know, so people don't have to go far to get some expertise. You know, do you um, think that they but, don't take us on board because we are the minority? So they thought, oh well, we need to serve the majority. Do you think there's an aspect of that? Yeah, again, feel free to edit me. I don't even think there's an aspect of it. This is one of those behaviors. It's a little bit like I said about white theologians v. black theologians who have been doing this, black and brown theologians actually have been doing this work for a very long time. The behavior, the default is very, very, you know, I think we, we all do some leadership development stuff in this space. And certainly for me, leadership development behavioral development, the shift, what that takes. It takes time, energy, and effort to help anybody to make that sort of behavioral shift to notice their defaults and to correct them and adjust them. This is exactly the same, you know? So we have black people sat next to us and the person we'll turn to is the white person next to us who knows nothing, has been nowhere and you know I'm I'm being slightly facetious but it's kind of like we do that because that's the default and a number of times and sometimes with organizations the person they'll get in to do their diversity stuff is a white man and I'm not saying that he doesn't know anything but it's kind of like it's the one time you can legitimately 
call in a person of color and expect them to probably know more than you know and have something to learn from them. And the default is to go where it's comfortable, where it's easier, and where you, what, with what you're used to. So I think that that is part of it. And if I were to go a little bit further, when people are used to ignoring you, they carry on ignoring you, unfortunately. Yeah. But that's part of the default as well. And it's all of that stuff that's got to be addressed and adjusted and um, until people see it or they're shown it, yeah, they don't change. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts too on, 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 on this. I don't want to put you on the spot. I know I'm the special <laughs> guest. but uh. I, I was going to say that if there is one thing that the 2020 protests have done is that black and brown people have learned how to open their mouths shout and keep shouting until they're hurt that's one thing it has done and we can't afford to get tired of doing it we can't afford to get tired of saying here I am don't ignore me and we have to keep doing that sometimes it's easier than others sometimes we just have to do it and sometimes we get a band of people to do it on our behalf and sometimes those band of people might be white allies who have finally understood what it's like but we have to keep shouting until we're heard because when we spoke gently and with a whisper nobody heard yeah yeah so going slightly to a different subject yep. tell us a little <laughs> bit about your book seven deadly scenes of women in leadership which you have yep. recently done a new edition haven't you why did you write it and how can it help women leaders especially black and ethnic minority leaders yeah that again, that's a really good question because I've been thinking about particularly the black and ethnic minority leaders, because I think there's an application both for men and for women in that context. So why did I write the book? Well, um, I wrote the book primarily because I wanted women to understand that there were some things that we take, have accepted as leadership culture have accepted as ways of thinking about ourselves which actually are not good and that are not godly you know so thinking too little of ourselves it's not good it's not godly you know um allowing our boundaries to be constantly infringed so that we feel that we can't say no to some stuff and we feel we can't say yes to some other good stuff that sort of stuff, realizing that's not good, that's not godly, um, feeling that we can't have legitimately have a, a, a personal vision that will take us to really feel as much as it's possible to do it in this life and um, to fill our potential, that our task is to get everybody else to fulfill their potential. That's not good and that's not godly. You know, so I wanted women to, I wanted women to realize, to recognize that there is some stuff that we've been taught is good and right that actually isn't necessarily good and right. So that's why I kind of called it seven deadly sins. And, you know, there are seven of these things that I highlight in the book. I also wrote it because a lot of leadership books are written with men in mind, you know, so, and often unconsciously so, even by women, but written with men in mind. And, you know, so the frameworks, the paradigms, the themes, the examples are all very male oriented. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to write something 
that had women in mind, but men could use as well. So a leadership book with women written with women in mind. And I've, I had men writing to me, you know, saying, I really found this helpful. I found that helpful. When are you going to write one for men? I say it would just be too big a book. But um, <laughs> joking aside, um, but, um, you know, so and, and also I wrote it because um, it's the book I wish I'd read before I started my leadership journey. And I remember spending a lot of time waiting and praying, Lord, would you get somebody to write a book for women, um, you know, leadership? And then the Spirit of God poked me in the back and said, you write it. And I've written the book I wish I'd read before I started out on my leadership journey. Um, so those are some of the reasons. And, you know, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek in using the term seven deadly sins, which is a kind of a well-known term within Christian circles because of the deadly sins, but it's also a colloquialism, you know, it's recognized language, even people who aren't believers, Christian believers, understand what a deadly sin is, and um, understand that it's not just about the sins, the so-called, you know, sins that's punishable by God, but those sins, those things that actually separate us from being who God is calling us to be, which was where the focus was um, for me. But in terms of how this relates particularly to women of color and men of color, I think these deadly sins are possibly bigger issues for us because we often find ourselves in contexts that don't support our leadership don't celebrate our leadership, don't encourage it, don't invite it. That means that um, for both men and women of colour, limiting self-perceptions may be a bigger challenge, even down to, you know, the failure to draw the line, the the theme around, you know, the setting of boundaries and, and actually having our boundaries infringed more often than white men or women might expect to have theirs infringed even personal vision you know we live in a society that says you can be anything you want well black people know that that's not necessarily the case you know so so there's that that's going on there's all this stuff that's going on so I I think it really helps there it's interesting because we took batches of the book with us to East Africa when we were last in East Africa and doing some work with leaders there both the men and the women love the book and uh, you know, the men will ask me to sign it for them, um, not just pretending it was their wives, you know, so um, <laughs> all their daughters. I can see how it helps. And, um, you know, I'm working on something at the moment, so uh, which will be a bit more generic, but still very much recognizing the gender aspect, gendered challenges as well. So we shall see. But yeah, that, 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 that was the thinking behind it. Thank you. As the founder and the co-director of Next Leadership, what was the vision for the leaders that you work with? We love talking about growing your leadership, building your organization and making a difference. So we have this thing about leaders who can make a difference, change making leaders. So we, we don't think of ourselves as working with just any leader. 
you know, we think of ourselves as working with those people who either are what we call grassroots leaders. So those are leaders who have lots of influence and personal power, but not necessarily money or positional power. And we also talk about the importance of working with gatekeepers who have positional power and who also have influence, but not necessarily through personal power, more through their position. So we're interested in those people who can change the game for everybody, either who are part of the gatekeepers or amongst the grassroots leaders. And we try to work with those sorts of people that we perceive actually God has given this person something. They may not recognize it. They may not even recognize God in the same way that we do. But, you know, this is how we work. And actually what we want to do is help them to develop it. So we often talk about wanting to amplify and and multiply um, what others do. And that our most important work is is done through others. So one of the reasons why people don't see me everywhere and having an opinion on everything, and as you can imagine, I have many opinions, is because I do just enough of that for people to understand that I know what I'm about, I know what I'm talking about, I know what I'm doing, I know how to develop other leaders, I know how to lead. So I do just enough of that so that people can see that. But I we recognize with Next Leadership that our real job is to help other leaders, mm-hmm. is to multiply ourselves through others, to help other leaders to, to flourish and to do what they do. And um, through that, we can do lots of things. It means that um, I'm not limited just to church leadership. I can be leading in, in the film industry. You know, so, you know, I, I can be leading in, in, in terms of the medical profession. I can be, you know, it depends who I'm, we're working with. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, we love the idea of raising change makers. And, and for Next Leadership, that's, that's primarily what we're about. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And I have had the privilege of being coached and mentored by you, Kate. So I know that you know what you're about. So <laughs> as we as we draw to a close on this very interesting conversation, Kate, can you just tell our listeners what services you provide and how they can connect with you if they want to use those services? Fantastic. Yep, yeah, would love to. So um, you can connect with us either through our website nextleadership.co.uk all one word you can connect with us on our facebook and linkedin pages next leadership or even um, my personal facebook and linkedin kate coleman you can also connect with us i think we're due to go on instagram in the next few month, uh, next month or so so you'll be able to do that too and in terms of what we, our services, what we offer, so we do a lot of mentoring and coaching. Ovi has been uh, blessed, I shall say, um, to have been on the receiving end. And I've been blessed to have been able to work with you as well in that capacity. We also run programs. So uh, our two flagship programs at the moment is Elevation, which is for women leaders and their development, and uh, also collaborative leadership, which is particularly around racialization and race. We also design programs for other, in fact, 
quite a lot of our work is designing programs for others and um, other groups as well. And we also run a leadership academy, which we piloted in Uganda a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, and called Role Model Leadership Academy, which we may be running here in the UK from the end of the year into next year. So a number of different things and consultancy, that's the other thing that we do. So have to sit down with anybody, have conversations that help them to extend, expand what they do and to think slightly outside the boxes that perhaps they've been used to thinking in before. So thanks. Um, it, it's been great being on with you guys and um, yeah, looking forward to watching myself or listening to myself back again. <laughs> no, thank um, you very much, Kate. It's been a pleasure having you and we've learnt so much as always. And I encourage our listeners to get in touch with you. Thank you for joining us today on the Shira podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We will have another inspirational leader chatting with us very soon. Until then, keep learning and keep leading. <laughs>